This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to re-watching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Katie White, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host Chad Hopkins. What's up, Chad? Nothing much. It is the day before Christmas Eve, and this is my fifth night in a row recording podcasts. So I'm on a bit of a marathon. I think this might be a new record, but uh, I'm glad to be doing it. Get it all done before the holidays, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? How are you doing? Pretty good. Apologies if you hear any uh, music playing. My walls are paper thin and everyone seems to be in the holiday spirit right now. So there's a bunch of Christmas carols going on in my apartment building, but hopefully it won't be too bad. Uh, yeah, it's it's feeling like Christmas in New York. This is our last episode of the year before we get into a new one. And I just wanted to shout out to all of our listeners because just like three episodes ago, I think maybe four, we talked about how we were almost at ten thousand downloads for the episode or for the podcast total, and we just passed thirteen thousand downloads today, which is absolutely insane. Three weeks, three thousand downloads. I don't know where it's all coming from, but thank you all for listening. I hope you're enjoying, and uh, thank you for your support. And here's to a new year. If you are new, we'd love to hear from you. Say hi to us on Facebook, Twitter, whatever your preference is. We'll have that information at the end of this podcast. Yes, we will. And uh, with that, let's just go ahead and go into our first episode discussion. So the first one for today is Phyllis's Wedding. It aired on February 8th, 2007, directed by Ken Whittingham and written by Caroline Williams. The day is here, the day Phyllis Lappin becomes Mrs. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. The whole office has been invited, and Michael has been given the special task of walking Phyllis's father down the aisle in his wheelchair. Things don't work out for Michael, though, because her father decides to stand up and walk her down the aisle himself. Thinking himself overshadowed and his moment stolen, Michael tries to take control of the reception, makes a fool of himself, surprise, surprise, Everyone else has a good time, and Pam leaves with Roy before the night is through. Dun, dun, dun. <sighs> I'm sure we'll talk on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> but let's let's start with Michael, because he is sort of the, the big focal point here. He shouldn't be, but he is. Yeah, uh, we start off with Michael this episode um, saying that Phyllis's wedding day is an even bigger day for him than it is for her, because he is the employer of the bride. Now, Michael says himself that he's never been to a wedding before, and that's really, really obvious because he's extremely nervous. And yeah, he has a small part in this wedding, but not really. Even Phyllis says that she only asked him to be in the wedding so that she would get six weeks of honeymoon vacation, which no one has ever gotten before. And it worked. He's completely flattered and overwhelmed to be a part of the day. To clarify, this is sort of his second wedding, because the first one he would have went to was his mother to his stepfather, Jeff, who we've heard about, we've talked about a few times. Uh, but he was supposed to be the, uh, the what was it, the ring bearer? And yeah. he was nervous and peed his pants and ran away shouting, I hate you. So not <laughs> a successful first attempt. And he is hoping, it appears, that this is sort of like his redemption wedding. And so he's nervous for no reason here. And he, he's talking about how he's co-giving away the bride. And since I pay her salary, it's like I am paying for the wedding. And there's so many things wrong with that. To start with, Michael doesn't pay Phyllis. The company does. He is just a manager of a branch of a company. And he has no responsibility for her paycheck in the end. 
Yeah, that's right. And his involvement in this day is really very, very little. And he makes himself so present in every single aspect of the day. He's in Phyllis's bridal room before she walks down the aisle, which is just hugely inappropriate. That's generally, you know, the mother of the bride if she's around, the bridesmaids, the bride, obviously, and no men. (laughs) And definitely not your boss if you're not, I don't know, in the bridal party. Um, And he is in there just being super inappropriate, talking about how he threw up already today because he's really nervous and (laughs) asking Phyllis about, you know, if he, if she needs any advice for her wedding night and just, you don't need to be in there, Michael. No. And apparently he's even so nervous that he, uh, as he says, breaks wind while talking to Phyllis and tries to blame it on her. Uh, It's, he, he tells the story about that first wedding he went to, how he ran away, and he says, I will be better this time. This, this is me improving. And so the wedding goes on. He's pushing her father, Elbert, down the aisle, and he stops it and stands up so that he can actually walk his daughter down the aisle. And that's a beautiful moment. That is, that's like everybody stands up and cheers. People start crying. That's that kind of moment. That is awesome because who knows the last time this guy walked? But Michael hates it and thinks of it as him overshadowing him and even tries to sit him back down. He says, no, no, you don't need to do this. (laughs) It's like he perceives it as his moment. He says this was going to be the highlight, but now the wedding has no highlight. And so he throws like a tantrum and he takes a wheelchair and he like drags it down the aisle and makes as much noise as he possibly can. And then he joins the groomsmen. And at first I was like, well, maybe he's supposed to be with them and he's just sort of cutting in line to, to be a little bit closer and make himself more present. But no, I don't think he's even supposed to be standing up there because there are, what was, I think there were four bridesmaids and four groomsmen, if I remember correctly. And the bride or the groomsmen were all wearing flowers on their jackets and Michael doesn't have either of those. So he just like squeezes himself up onto the, uh, the, the altar and gets himself on the way all because he thinks he was upstaged. He, he does it again in the photographs. So the ceremony's over the, uh, the bride and groom and the bridal party groomsmen, they're all taking photographs. And I love that scene with the, with the photographer where he says, okay, everybody out of the frame this time, just uh, bride and dad. Oh, and the sisters. Oh, and this bridesmaid and that one and that one and you and everybody but Michael, basically. <laughs> he just kind of is trying to be really cautious about not saying, hey, you, get out of the photo. But Michael's putting himself in all of these family photos, just, you know, typical Michael fashion, inserting himself where he does not need to be. And he even starts trying to take control of the ceremony itself. He, he tries to announce, uh, for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Bob Vance. But he says it after Phyllis says, I do, but Bob hasn't said it yet. And so he, he, uh, everybody just sort of stares at him quietly, like, well, that was awkward. And he curses and gets back in the groomsmen line. And then Bob says his vows and says, I do. And Michael tries it again and everybody applauds, but it's not for him. It's because these people just got married. <laughs> it's on and on. I mean, he is making a fool of himself constantly during this day and eventually gets himself kicked out of the wedding when uh, he tries to make a toast which, first of all, would have been a really bad toast to begin with because he decided to 
only use introductions to a toast and not any actual content. <laughs> he just introduces himself about six times and they get progressively more inappropriate. And um, he and Phyllis went to high school together, actually, which is something we haven't talked about, I guess. Um, I think we've mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah, we, we may have. Um, but yes, he knew Phyllis in high school. And so he decided that all of her best friends and family needed to know that in high school, she apparently had the nickname Easy Rider. He decided to let all the world and God know that at her wedding, and uh, Mm. he gets himself kicked out. He leaves with, I hate you, which is exactly the thing he says when he leaves the wedding with his stepfather and mother. Uh, so things didn't fare any better for him here. And it's just because he tried so hard and he put himself in places he shouldn't have been. And uh, thankfully, at the end, he, he sort of hangs around outside, even though he has been kicked out. And he realizes that the wedding wasn't about him. He does, in fairness, uh, apologize to Phyllis as they're making their way to the car. And he says, I just wanted this to be a great day for you. And of course, at that point, he sort of quote found Uncle Al, who who we might mention here in a bit. Uh, here in a bit, but it, it, it's nice that he does sort of learn his lesson by the end. I mean, he's still very much Michael, uh, and still very much as exuberant and obtuse as he always is. <laughs> but uh, he does apologize, and I think that's saying something. Phyllis goes so far as to kiss him on the cheek and, and thank him so much and give him a hug for, uh, for finding Uncle Al, maybe not for all of his inappropriate behavior during the day, but she gets her six weeks, so hopefully that was worth it. <laughs> Possibly the other big character of the wedding is Pam, because early on she starts noticing that this is basically a clone of the wedding that she planned but didn't go through with. Uh, you look around and you have the wedding invitations, which even, I mean, this isn't Phyllis and Bob's fault, but they have the same initials and they use the same flowers and they use the same food and they use the same dinner mints and everything is just an exact clone of this wedding that she put together and then canceled. Down to the dress as well. Yeah. Uh, Phyllis actually has the same dress that Pam was going to have. I mean, it's an exact copy. At various points during the reception, she... She interacts with Jim. Jim says, when are we going to see some of those famous Beasley dance moves? And she says, oh, I'm sort of holding back. I'm such a dorky dancer. And he says, that's cute. And she just sort of lingers and stares at him sort of wistfully. And then later, as Jim and Karen are dancing, she's staring on and Jim stares back. And she decides, nope, I've had enough of this. I need to to leave. And Roy approaches her. Roy was invited. And he has paid the band $20 to play the song You Were Meant For Me by Jewel, which was their song. And they go and they dance privately and they leave together holding hands. And, you know, earlier in the wedding, Roy had approached her and sort of apologized for not helping with the planning and saying, you think this feels bad? Just think I actually wanted to get married. And so they've gone on this small journey throughout the course of the wedding reception and. Roy has been trying so hard all of season three to get back with Pam. And so far, it sort of looks like he was successful. And he even compliments Phyllis's effort for the wedding and says, wow, uh, she did a really great job. This is a beautiful wedding. And then he says, Pam, I don't know if you realize this, but I actually got you this color flower for our prom. (laughs) 
And Pam says, you've got to be kidding me. I planned out this entire wedding. This is supposed to be our wedding. And, um, and Roy admits that he was kind of absent during the wedding planning and apologizes for that. So he is remorseful, or at least appears to be. And I mean, I have to admit, this is not the Roy that we saw in season one. I don't want to side with him yet, but I mean, he's definitely made strides. Yeah, he certainly hasn't been as callous as he was in the first couple of seasons and as sort of flippant of Pam and her interests and anything like that. I just couldn't stop. I couldn't help but think that how ironic it is that they get back together basically at their own wedding, (laughs) you know? Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, And I was just wondering, do you think this is genuine affection that Pam is feeling for Roy? Do you think he actually won her over? Or do you think she's just sort of caught up in the moment of might have beens and goes with him to make herself feel better after seeing Jim and Karen enjoying each other's company. I think Roy was maybe slowly breaking her down over the last several episodes, all of season three. And then this wedding was just kind of the, the last straw. I think seeing her wedding kind of play out, but somebody else getting married kind of got to her, I think, seeing Jim and Karen be happy. But then, of course, Jim, you know, Pam doesn't see this, but Jim has a talking head where he says, hypothetically, if I thought Pam was interested, then and he kind of trails off and he says, well, no, 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 it's totally a hypothetical. So she doesn't see that Jim is interested. Uh, But then, of course, Jim has a talking head later and after he sees Pam and Roy leave, he says, here's a non-hypothetical, I'm really happy I'm with Karen. So again, we have Jim liking both women, loving both women, maybe. That was a roundabout way of answering your question. But (laughs) um, (laughs) basically, I I think it was a little bit of both. I think Roy broke her down. And I think um, this wedding was just a little bit too romantic. And she, uh, she missed him. I agree. I I think that the fact that they do get back together, quote, at their wedding is significant. And it's just a a, sort of a culmination of everything Roy's been trying for this season. She starts a little cold, a little distant because they had just split up after being together for so long and being about to be uh, be married. Uh, But he'd been sweet to her all season. He's been uh, trying really hard to relate to her and to apologize and to show that he's changed. And I mean, getting a, a police cover band to cover a song by Jewel, I mean, it, it, it's a nice gesture and he's successful. But then mentioning that moment with Jim, uh, the second one specifically, where he says, here's a non-hypothetical, I'm really happy I'm with Karen. Do you think that is genuine? Or do you think it's just sort of a bitter reaction like, well, Pam and Roy, obviously they're happy together now. So yeah, I'm happy with Karen. Like, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, I have a specific thought on this. I think, I think he's, I, I don't think he's happy to be with Karen, but I think he likes her a whole lot. I mean, he would, in my opinion, he would really rather be with Pam But if he can't have Pam, Karen's great, and he likes Karen a whole lot, and she's fun, and they get along really well. But I don't think, I mean, she's not his first choice. I think that comment was definitely spurred by seeing Pam and Roy leave together. 
I'm trying to get into Jim's mindset in that moment because to me, he's gone through this whole ordeal. He starts off in Scranton. He likes Pam a whole lot. She turns him down when he finally shares his feelings. And he's been watching her almost in this emotionally abusive relationship. And he thinks he would be so much better and she still turns him down. So he leaves, he goes to Stanford, he meets somebody else. And over time, after finally putting Pam in his past, he falls for Karen, right? They go back to Scranton though. And all of a sudden Pam's back in his life. She called off the wedding. They're starting to form this relationship again, only for him to be denied again by her feelings for Roy. And so it just feels like a slap in the face if I'm trying to think the way Jim is thinking, even if he is with Karen in this moment and Pam doesn't think she's hurting him or maybe she does think she's hurting him. It's just, uh, I, I don't know, but it, that hurts. That, that's a rough thing that Jim has gone through. I find myself wondering if Pam knows that Jim still has feelings for her because I, I don't know if he knows that she has feelings. I don't know if... Pam knows that he has feelings. Um, I'm sure that that would change things if she knew that Jim cared for her still, but I don't, I don't know that she does. I kind of think that both of them suspect that the other has some sort of feelings for them, but that makes it all the more painful when they see that person with somebody else. And so they just assume that there is no interest or they retaliate because the interest is there, but they're not acting on it. I don't know. Just the thought. Yeah. Well, that was a lot of romantic talk. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) Big, big moment. Yeah. And I only had one more character moment to mention. It's the tiniest thing, but there is a sweet moment where Dwight and Angela are holding each other outside and dancing together. And so they, they get, their dance even though they're still trying to keep the relationship secret they do get to dance together at the wedding so now how about the stuff that makes us laugh <laughs> a little bit more uh, light-hearted this is arguably my favorite cold open in the entire series um this is the sort of pavlovian uh altoid trick between jim and dwight so Jim has a talking head where he says, in school, we learned about the scientists that would make dogs salivate at the sound of a bell by giving them food every time a bell rang. So he's going to conduct a similar experiment by every time his computer shuts down and makes that little song, um, he's going to offer Dwight an Altoid. And we see a series of clips of this happening and then... One day he does it, he shuts down his computer, and Dwight just sticks his hand out expecting an Altoid, (laughs) and it worked. And then we see Dwight just like, what am I doing? Oh, my mouth tastes so bad, it's so dry. (laughs) And it was just a trick for Jim, nobody else knew what happened, Dwight didn't know what happened, and it was just so fun to see him play that trick, just for his own enjoyment. It was like an experiment to see if what he learned in school could actually be applied to like a real life situation. It turns out, yes, it can. (laughs) I've always wanted to try that. 
Yeah, I'd like to try it too. That'd be pretty funny. Jim also has a moment where he convinces Dwight that there are a lot of people crashing the wedding that he needs to stop. Dwight and him are walking into the the ceremony together and Dwight says, where did all these people come from? There are too many people on this earth. We need a new plague. <laughs> Which, okay, it, it, if that's your sentiment, Dwight, that's one perspective. Uh, but Jim convinces him that it's because there's a lot of people crashing the wedding. And so he investigates or does his own form of investigation. He comes across Uncle Al that we mentioned earlier. And Uncle Al is old and we learn has dementia. Dwight doesn't know this, thinks he's a freeloader who's just sort of walked in to get some food and escorts him out, which is a bit of a problem. But Michael does find him later. It's okay. But he also, Dwight also becomes the bouncer and he has to keep Michael out after he sort of bombs a reception speech. And my favorite part of that is he says to Michael, it gives me no pleasure. But then he turns around and he's smiling like, Hey, I just kept a guy out of the wedding. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> I love a little tiny bit with Kelly. We don't get a whole lot of Kelly in this episode, but was it Meredith that asked her about her dress? Uh, the, I can't I think, think of who so? else it would be. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was Meredith who um, turned to Kelly and said, I thought you weren't supposed to wear white to a wedding. Kelly's wearing this long white dress, which, hi. <laughs> Don't do that. And she's wearing a tiara of all things as well. And Kelly says, oh, sorry, there was an emergency. And then she has a talking head where she's just smugly looking at the camera and says, I look really good in white. (laughs) It's just (laughs) the pettiest, most Kelly thing. Stanley has a funny moment uh, before the wedding actually starts. He and his wife are walking up and he's holding a gift and Jim and Karen are walking up and they're holding a gift and they ask each other what the gift is. Stanley says a toaster. And, of course, Jim and Karen also got him a to- got them a toaster. But it made me think, do you think that Stanley is trying to re-gift the same toaster he originally bought for Pam, but couldn't return to the store? I had not even thought that, but <laughs> yes, I totally do think that now. I think yep. so, too. It's one of my funniest or favorite little tiny moments where he, he uh, I'm, if you if y'all think back to the beginning of season three, it's probably the very first episode, Gay Witch Hunt, where he says, uh, I bought them a toaster. They ended up calling it off. So they gave me back the toaster, tried to take it to the store, but they don't sell that kind of toaster anymore. So now my house has two toasters and he's so put off by it. And so I just love to think that he decided to bring that toaster to the wedding here and re-gift it to get it out of his hair. If that is true, that is the smartest most hidden piece of writing like that's really smart i hope that's true (laughs) i hope so too i think the last one for me is this little bit about michael at the wedding um he just says i know a fair bit about fine food and he has a glass of wine and he takes a big huge loud sniff of the wine and he said this is a white (laughs) yeah i I couldn't tell you're not wrong (laughs) (laughs) um just a couple more for me I love that in the ceremony itself, the priest asks if Phyllis takes Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, to be her husband. Like, the, the joke is even there. Uh, Creed takes somebody's card off of a gift and replaces it with his own to claim it as his own gift to give. Kevin, we haven't mentioned Kevin yet, but his band, Scrantonicity, the police cover band, does get to 
play at the wedding reception. It's their third one after their bassist wedding and their guitarist wedding. So uh, their first non-band member wedding to play at. Good for them. Which which confused me because if you're playing your your bassist's wedding, are you playing it without the bassist or is the groom spending the whole time in the band? That's a good <laughs> I question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. It's either a really bad band for the wedding or the bride's kind of pissed. <laughs> And he, he makes the announcement about Uncle Al missing, and he's old and he has dementia, and it's very serious. And then he goes straight into the police's Roxanne, which is about <laughs> falling in love with a, a, a sex worker, a prostitute. And it, it's just like the, the strangest transition from serious announcement to singing about a streetwalker, to put it in one way. Uh, <laughs> but the last thing I wanted to mention as far as funny moments goes, and it was something I... W- only noticed for the first time this watch, and I thought it was hysterical. So I'm curious to see if you noticed this too. During the bouquet toss, you have all the women standing behind Phyllis ready to catch it, and it is going straight to Kelly. But Ryan is standing amidst the women and knocks it out of Kelly's grasp so that Toby's date picks it up instead. Did you see that? You know, I didn't see that this watch. (laughs) But I think... Like a long, long time ago, I noticed that and I kind of forgot about it, but that's brilliant. It's <laughs> I exactly thought it was Ryan. so funny. I thought it was so fun. I was laughing so hard. That was like the one of the biggest laughs I got from this episode was Ryan like desperately knocking the bouquet out of Kelly's grasp so that she doesn't take things too far. Because can you imagine if she had caught that bouquet? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we did have some deleted scenes for this one as well. Uh, what were some of your favorites? Michael accidentally reveals Phyllis to Bob before the wedding. Bob has come up to check on Phyllis and he knocks at the door. And Michael, without even thinking, opens the door and says, Hey, Bob, it's don't you know it's bad luck to see the wedding or see the bride before the wedding? He says, Yes, that's why I didn't open the door. <laughs> and so uh, r- Michael ruins that moment. And then Bob actually smells the breaking of wind that Michael had mentioned earlier, and he continues to try to blame it on Phyllis rather than admitting it. But uh, apparently, Michael has some problems when he gets nervous. Kevin has a talking head interview where he discusses uh, the women that he has proposed to. Apparently, there have been four. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that Stacy, who is now his fiance, is the second best of the people that he proposed to. He preferred one, but she said no, so he's really glad it was Stacy. Right, right. He, he's psyched it was Stacy. <laughs> uh, there was an interesting little plot thread. It, it lasted three different deleted scenes where Phyllis tells Angela that she seated her next to a potential boyfriend, basically, at the reception. And it's out of goodwill. Phyllis continues to think that she has this friendship with Angela that Angela doesn't really seem to reciprocate. Uh, and Angela responds, oh, a stranger. Thanks a lot. Thanks. That's not really what I wanted, but whatever. So she meets this guy in the second scene, and his name is Dennis, and he appears to be a perfect match for Angela. Uh, I mean, we know Angela likes her cats, and he's a veterinarian, focuses on animal spirituality, and he sleeps well at night, not because he does good work at his job, but because of Jesus. And Angela has this like look where maybe (laughs) like she's considering him for a second and then the final of these deleted scenes for this thread he prepares to go and he asks her for her number so that they can meet up again sometime and she says oh i'm flattered but i'm not interested because i'm seeing someone else and he says well see me too i don't understand she says i'm with someone intimately 
And he says, well, I didn't see your wedding ring. And Phyllis neglected to mention your promiscuity. I just thought, woof, wow. <laughs> that, that's, wow, Dennis. <laughs> okay, call Angela out on her hypocrisy for sure. So for our discussion topic this episode, in uh, in respect to Michael being super nervous for something that he had no business being nervous for, is there an instance in your life where you've been nervous for absolutely no reason? It's hard to think of a specific situation, but more in a general sense. You know, both of us are musicians and have been actors, or I'm. I, when I say have been, I mean myself uh, ex, at some point in time. And for those professions, you go through auditions all the time. And you'd think after a certain number of auditions, you'd be used to the process and you wouldn't have any nerves. But that's just not the case, unfortunately. You no. go to these things and you're always terrified out of your mind and you make mistakes you wouldn't normally make because you're nervous. And that's what really comes to mind is all the times that I could have had an audition that just went exceedingly well if I wasn't nervous and it's like the nerves ruin it yeah been there I know that one for (laughs) sure um what about you I had uh I mean of course that one also but Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, right (laughs) I realized recently that when I'm meeting somebody who I haven't seen in a really long time it's not new people it's old friends I had a friend come into town um uh, about a year ago, who I hadn't seen in about 10 years, but we were best friends growing up. And I was so nervous to see her again, because there's just all these hyped expectations of we were inseparable when we were in elementary school or middle school or whatever it was. And now it's like, I don't know you at all. Um, but it ended up being a lot of fun. But I just that was the first thing that came to mind for me. Like almost concern over whether relationship will be the same or not. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it turned out she has not changed at all. She said I hadn't. So <laughs> it was great. really fun. She is a kid now, so that's changed. But <laughs> other than that, it's pretty much the exact same. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and go into our next episode, which is titled Business School. It was aired on February 15th of 2007, it was directed by famed TV and now Hollywood director Joss Whedon and written by Brent Forrester. So we have a few threads of plot here in this episode, about three. Uh, On the first, Ryan invites Michael to speak at his business school. Now, Michael is thrilled and flattered, and he's sure that this is a huge honor. But really, Michael, but really, Ryan is horribly embarrassed of Michael and only invited him so that he would get the extra credit for his business class. Another thread is Dwight finds a bat in the office and completely wrecks the office. He wrecks everyone's day um, trying to get this bat out of the office. And third, following Phyllis's wedding, uh, as we mentioned, Pam and Roy are back together. Pam is a part of an art class that is throwing an art show. And she invites everyone in the office And pretty much no one shows up. Um, The only people that show up are Roy, Oscar, and Michael. So we get some some more insight into Pam's uh, outside of work hobbies. Starting with Michael and the the title of the episode, Going to Business School, he's blown this speech completely out of proportion. He acts like he's speaking at a commencement ceremony, but it's definitely about as far away from that as you can get. He has all these speech ideas for like if they throw their hats in the air, he says something like, may your dreams fly or hats fly higher than your dreams or something like something stupid, something you'd find off of like a, I I don't know, I don't think a a fortune cookie would even come up with something that lame, but Michael is so proud of it. 
and he walking around on campus with Ryan says, oh, this reminds me of memories I would have made if I'd gone to college. That's not how memories work, Michael, but okay. And so going into this, he has set up these high stakes that just don't exist. And of course, Ryan sets up the class with Michael out of earshot by telling them that Michael is a manager of a branch of a failing paper supply company. So Mm. he is prefacing Michael's speech with failure. Um, And so Michael walks in thinking that this is going to be a big congratulatory pat on the back for him. And he's going to lecture on these young minds, these young impressionable people um, with all of his wisdom. But really, they know far more about business than Michael does. They're asking him questions that go way above his head. And um, he gets really defensive. Right. He, he walks in with a, a little boombox, a little stereo, and he's playing music. Uh, it's actually the start of somebody else's uh, audiobook or speech or something. And because I do the research for you guys, it's the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2 in F, <laughs> Movement 1. You're welcome. <laughs> but he does stuff like tears pages out of a student's textbook. He says, you cannot learn from books, so replace these pages with life lessons, rip, leaving you with a book, rip, that is worth its weight in gold. And I can't help but think, you know that gif from Mean Girls where somebody breaks the tiara and the character like, oh no, (laughs) he he makes that face. face. (laughs) It's sort of that, I make that face because that was $200 or at least $200 that Michael just tore apart and threw in the uh, the floor of the classroom and it's all on that guy's face he when he hands <laughs> he him back that book back. which is pounds lighter <laughs> you just watch that kid's face melt because that's his textbook <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then he goes on he says there's four types of business tourism food service railroads and sales and hospitals manufacturing and air travel <laughs> <laughs> Like all of those overlap in some way, Michael, and there's far more types of business than just those. Um, And he talks about things you need to start a business, a building, something to sell. He starts throwing candy bars at the students, like a whatchamacallit, a payday, a hundred grand, a a Snickers. And he just tosses them and nobody makes any attempts to try and catch them. In fact, he actually nails a couple of guys in the face with a candy bar. The first question he's presented with is how have you adapted your business model to? go into a more computer reliable world or something to that effect. And he says, well, I'm not worried at all because you know what? Real business is done on paper. Computers are good for playing video games and doing stuff like that, but real business is done on paper. Write that down. And the camera pans to the entire class lecture hall that is typing what he just said to write down. Nobody's using pencil paper. Everybody's using a laptop. So it's like it completely invalidates what Michael just said. And he is completely belittling the brains in this classroom. I mean, they are in business school. So presumably, when I hear business school, I'm imagining like an MBA or some kind of master's program. And... um, Or if not, I mean, even an undergrad, Michael, we learned, didn't go to college. So they're all more educated than Michael, at least. And he is treating these business school students like they don't even know how to run a lemonade stand. I mean, he's talking about (laughs) 
profit. And then he says, that's a fancy word for money. (laughs) Yes, they they know. (laughs) And he says, he's talking about sales as if you're explaining to a five-year-old how to run their lemonade stand. It's just horribly embarrassing. And here's our catchphrase, Michael being Michael. He finds ways to be racist, even in this situation. He uses an offensive term for Polish people at one point towards a student in the class. And then he he starts getting defensive and says, you stand here on your ivory tower. And he turns his head and looks at the teacher, who's a black guy, and says, and your ebony tower. I mean, come on, Michael, this isn't. This didn't have to be about anything aside from talking business. You're barely talking that. And now you're insulting people? And it, it's just... Come on. I, I, I feel for Ryan, even though I don't like him very much. I feel for him because Michael, this was a lot worse than he, he could have pictured it being. At the start of the episode, Ryan says, you know, I wanted to bring my boss because you automatically get bumped up a full letter grade if you bring in your boss. I'd be stupid not to do it, right? Well, it didn't go too well, did it, Ryan? <laughs> Ugh, and I, I found myself wondering if that would have been worth it. I honestly don't know. I mean... A whole letter grade sounds tempting, but Michael Scott might not be worth it. Well, there are consequences for this. Uh, First, amidst all of the frenzy of him getting asked these questions that he can't answer and seeing himself as being betrayed by Ryan, we see Michael's dedication to Dunder Mifflin. Yes, they have stiff competition. And yes, the future looks rough in regards to paper versus computer usage. But Michael says Dunder Mifflin is the big picture. And he's not going to give up on it. And I, I do admire that about him. Uh, in the car ride back, he's quiet as Ryan's driving him. And he's saying, you know, it wasn't personal. Michael says business is always personal. It's the most personal thing in the world. And it's not. But Michael himself is personally invested in Dunder Mifflin and his time spent there and his future there. And I really admire how dedicated he is to this company, even in tough times. I agree with that, and I do admire him for that, and I also kind of feel bad for him because that's all he has is Dunder Mifflin. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have much of a family. He doesn't have close relationships in his life, at least not healthy ones, but he has Dunder Mifflin, and he is in charge of this little branch, and he's dedicated everything he has to it. And the consequences I mentioned, he tells Ryan to pack his things, and you wonder... Is he really firing Ryan over this? The the boy he's had a man crush on since the first episode? But he's not firing Ryan. He's moving him to the annex with Kelly. Worth noting, I'm pretty sure this is the first time they've actually called that space the annex in the show. So there's that. Hmm. Um, but he tells Ryan a good manager doesn't fire people. He hires people and inspires people. People will never go out of business. And... Like I said, I admire Michael because he is in it, maybe wrongly, for the relationships and for the friends that he makes. And that's what makes him so endearing in times like these, when he can be offensive, he can be obnoxious, he can be too much, but Michael is always in it for the relationships with those around him. So moving on to Pam and her art show. So she has spent um, the whole day before at the office Uh, kind of advertising for this art show. She tells pretty much everyone, and no one seems to take any interest in it, except for Toby, which is really funny. Um, His (laughs) daughter is in a play that night. Uh, We know he has a a very young daughter. And he is so 
enamored with Pam that he is considering skipping out on his daughter's play to go to Pam's art show. And Pam says, no, 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 you can't do that. Go to your daughter's play. It's totally fine. And he says, well, it's it's important to support local art. And what they do is not art. (laughs) (laughs) She's a kid. She's in elementary school or maybe even younger than that. No, it's not super thoughtful art, but you gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do. It's your daughter. He says, maybe one of the other parents will videotape it. (laughs) No, you need to be with your daughter, Toby. Uh, It's it's sad because I feel for Pam. You know, she's just gotten back with this guy who did treat her terribly. He's trying uh, to both her credit and his. uh, he, He says he's going to go to that art show. He said he wouldn't miss it for the world. They're already back to I love yous, and I couldn't help but think that was maybe a little bit premature just considering their history, but yeah, also considering their their history, it does kind of make sense too. It's, it's just the way things are. But she wants other people besides this guy who feels obligated to go. Not He doesn't necessarily want to go. He feels obligated to go because they're back together, right? And she's wanting to get people she works with, people she sees every day to go support her as well and kelly is the first person we see her telling about it and she doesn't seem all that interested in it and then she tells kevin i think later and he doesn't seem all that interested in it toby is the only one that's expressing interest but i mean it's toby (laughs) he's a, a sweet guy at sometimes especially to pam but it's toby so i i feel for her especially when nobody does show up except for roy and his brother and he says, your art was the prettiest art of all the art. Well, thank you for that <laughs> high praise. And then Oscar, who shows up with Gil. Yeah, so Gil um, and Oscar are standing in front of Pam's display and start talking about it. And little do they know, Pam is right behind them. And Gil starts saying um, that he doesn't like the art because... Real art takes courage and honesty, and Oscar starts defending her and kind of saying, well, you know, those aren't Pam's strong suits, but her art's pretty. And Gil says, yeah, exactly, those aren't her strong suits, that's why this is motel art. And Pam kind of hears all of this, and that, on top of no one she really cares about being there, she is not happy. And Roy even points out that nobody from work is there, and he thinks it's cool. He's like, yeah, it's an art show, and nobody from work is here, pretty cool, right? She says, yeah, cool, whatever. And then he doesn't stick around. He says, are you okay with me leaving now? I I looked at all of it. Sure, okay, fine, go ahead. She's put put out, but uh, I mean, what's she going to do? Just argue with Roy and keep him there? Maybe she should have, but he leaves anyways. And then saving grace for the night, Michael shows up. And this is one of my favorite scenes from the whole show. I don't think I could ever do like a proper ranking of favorite office moments, but this would be pretty high up there uh, because Michael just, it's, he doesn't know what he's doing for Pam, but it means so much that he shows up and he says, I'm so proud of you. And it's awesome. And I have to admit, I stole some of this from the commentary that we'll talk about in a minute, but especially given Michael's rough day that he just had at the business school, He was not in a good place. He was upset. He was defensive. And he runs across town, as he said, to go to Pam's art show. He apologizes for being late. And he said, you know, I I just wanted to come support you. 
Um, and then he is completely awestruck by her work. He says, you did all of this freehand? <laughs> like, yeah, of course. <laughs> These could be tracings. <laughs> These could be tracings. And um, he is genuinely so thrilled for Pam. And then he sees her drawing of the office building. And, oh, my gosh, he has to have it. He asks her how much. And she says, you want to buy it? He goes, yeah, I have to have this for the office. As if that was just a given. He absolutely, it was a non-negotiable. They had to hang it in the office. And that gesture just, I think, really meant a lot to Pam. She and Michael, (laughs) well, let's just say it, that Michael gets along with Pam just fine, but Pam doesn't always get along with Michael. (laughs) But um, I think this moment, it's probably their first real, I don't know, genuine moment that we've seen in the show. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Most of the the real genuine moments we've seen Michael have so far with people in the office were with like Jim in Booze Cruise or Benihana mm-hmm. Christmas or stuff like that. Um, so this is, if not the first one with Pam, it's one of the first ones for sure. Um, I, I I love it. She hugs him, and it's just a it's it's a beautiful scene. And like I said, one of my favorites from the show. Now, only other character I really have to talk about is Jim. He has a talking head at the start of the episode, and he says, yeah, Pam is with Roy, I'm with Karen, Brangelina's with Frangelina, let's move on. And at the end of that talking head, before the camera cuts to something else, it's like a split second, his face falls. And I was wondering, did you see that? And is it worth analyzing or speculating on for a split second? Let's speculate wildly, why not? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I did see that, and... That talking head always kind of bugged me because it's kind of callous and he seems to go, you know, back and forth. Oh, I love Pam. Oh, whatever. Doesn't matter. Um, Yeah, if she was interested, I mean, just an episode ago. Yeah, if she was interested, that'd be a different story to now. Ah, whatever. She's back with Roy. I know it's a defense mechanism. I know he's just putting up walls so that it will hurt less. But it's still, ugh still kind of sucks that he would say that um but then his face does fall at least i think it does and we know that he's just putting up barriers right right i I think it's tearing him up because we've been talking about how he's had this rough relationship with karen the past couple of weeks because of his feelings for pam he's admitted to his girlfriend that he still has feelings for pam and now that doesn't matter because Pam's not single anymore. And not only is she not single, she's not single with the man she almost married in the first place that caused Jim to completely leave. Uh, So, I mean, we've already talked that to death, but uh, I just wanted to mention that his face does fall and it, it says a lot in that split second where it does. Um, But then the whole rest of the Jim material we get from the episode, maybe this, uh, we can use to transition to funny moments, but he pulls this vampire prank on Dwight because Dwight did find the bat in the ceiling and Jim turns it into a prank and he pretends he got bit and has, he says, you know, I'm feeling tingly. It's strangely powerful. And then him and Karen team up and say, Oh, this, this garlic bread burned me, Karen. Oh, but this garlic bread is cold. Impossible. And then he sees the glare from Angela's crucifix. He has a headache from it. And, then he's leaving the work at, leaving work at the end of the day, and he's going to go lie down, draw the shades because there's too much sun. 
And uh, it's, it's so funny because Dwight believes it. <laughs> He totally does. He um, has this whole talking head about, well, it makes sense that a vampire bat would come to a Slovenia like Pennsylvania and um, <laughs> just completely, it's, it, he, he's a little, I don't know what the word is. It's not proud of Jim, but he's like backing him. He's like, go, your journey is nigh. Like he's just very, right. um, n- not quite excited for Jim and this journey that he's on, but supportive of Jim's transformation into a vampire. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He does get defensive though. And he he approaches Creed and has him fashion a broom handle into a wooden stake, just in case Jim turns against him, I suppose. And there at that ending, when, when Jim says goodbye to Dwight, uh, we see that Dwight was holding this and he, he had the the pointy end sort of hidden, but he was definitely holding a a very sharp broom handle (laughs) prepared to attack should things go south. There was also, of course, the whole bat thing, which we didn't talk a whole lot about, but basically Dwight finds a bat in the ceiling of the office right above Pam's reception desk. And um, the whole day there is spent just trying to capture this bat. Now, animal control is supposed to come at six o'clock at the end of the day, but Dwight, of course, cannot wait that long. And so at first they trap it in the conference room, but it gets out while as they're trying to capture it, and then it, uh, they capture it in the break room. Now, the restroom of the office is through the, the break room. You have to go into the break room to go to the office, or to go to the restroom. And Meredith is in the restroom when they trap the bat in the break room. So she now cannot leave <laughs> without <laughs> confronting this bat. And so Dwight, um, in an effort to capture this bat, as Meredith is exiting the restroom, he throws a trash bag over Meredith's head, uh, which also contains the bat. And it's this whole violent struggle between the bat, Dwight, and Meredith. And I thought he was going to suffocate her. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it is pretty funny. Um, most of my funny moments for the episode did come from the whole bat situation. Uh, at the very start, when it first gets out, you hear Angela uh she's lying on the floor and she says god this is angela martin please don't let that stupid thing come anywhere near me (laughs) (laughs) and then she has a talking head shortly thereafter where she's wearing like this this plastic hood and she says poop is raining from the ceilings poop (laughs) like it's the worst (laughs) thing she could possibly imagine or that it's literally raining poop rather than just the the slight droppings that it actually was uh there was also just one Last one for me, a talking head with Michael, where I honestly forget the context, but it was towards the beginning of the episode where we learned that Michael's teacher was a pedophile. <laughs> yeah. um, Mr. Handel was his teacher, and Michael says he was so cool, he'd hang out with us. Uh, he actually hooked up with one of the students, and then he, his demeanor kind of changes. He says, well, and then like 12 others, and then like 12, hmm. and then like 12 others came forward it really ruined the eighth grade for us, <laughs> which uh, it's like he was just realizing that this was inappropriate. Stanley just straight up leaves when the bat gets loose. He he walks out the door with his jacket over his head, just says goodbye. And we don't see him at all the whole rest of the episode. <laughs> and then there's a moment where Kelly, Creed uh, Creed goes to the closet and grabs like some uh, spray to help get rid of this bat. And Kelly says, don't hurt the bat. It has feelings in a family. And 
Then when Dwight lets it out of the conference room to try and catch it, she cowers and screams, kill it, kill it, kill it. <laughs> it's an immediately, <laughs> it's an immediate turn as she uh, is actually swooped down upon by this bat. Um, and just two more quick things that don't relate to the bat necessarily. We get Dwight's advice from Michael, which is don't be an idiot. He says, whenever I'm about to do something, I think would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. <laughs> And then in relation to Jim's vampire story, vampire transformation, he says, I don't have much experience with vampires, but I hunted werewolves once and I, I shot one. But by the time I got back to it, it had turned back into my neighbor's dog. To which I had to say, I don't think Dwight understands werewolves because <laughs> werewolves, at least in fiction, don't come from dogs. And I think that line is so funny especially after listening to the commentary and learning that it was originally written, the werewolf had turned back into my neighbor. Um, <laughs> and Rain Wilson said in the commentary, he's like, yeah, that probably would have been cut uh, because it's just a little bit too out there. But into your neighbor's dog is a little bit more believable. <laughs> and it's just a little too real. So they kept it in. Yeah, that, that was, it was really funny. Now, deleted scenes. What do you got from deleted scenes? So as Michael is preparing to go on his business school lecture, Jim delivers him several uh, business books, including a digest of business terms and a cliff notes on economics. And Michael is like, thanks so much. Is there a summary of all these books? <laughs> and Jim says, yep, these are the summaries of those books. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even want to read the summaries of the summaries. <laughs> Uh, there's a moment where Creed shows up at Phyllis's desk with something to sign. And Stanley says, you know, she won't be back for six weeks. She's on her honeymoon. Creed just sort of sighs and says, okay, I'll wait. And he just sits on the edge of her desk. Like, are you really going to be there the whole time, Creed? Uh, okay, if you want to. <laughs> but you're going to be waiting a rather long wait. There was one regarding Pam's art show, which I thought was really interesting. Karen notices a flyer in the break room for Pam's art show and is about to pull it down, but Oscar walks in, so she decides not to. But I was wondering if you thought maybe that meant Karen was jealous of Pam or, you know, mad at the whole Jim-Pam situation. I had feelings about this deleted scene. <laughs> um, yeah? Yeah, because it made me really angry because the way it's shot, yeah. um, she stares, or she she's in the, the kitchen, and she's looking at this flyer, and then you see her gaze go out of the window towards reception. And in that view, you can see both Jim and Pam. And she stares for a second and says, yeah, I think I need to do this. She doesn't say it, to be clear. She thinks it. And you see the moment of resolve. And she grabs the flyer and starts to take it down as Oscar walks in. And so she stops. But then before she leaves, she stares out at Pam again and I, I'm trying not to hold it against her because it didn't make the final cut of the episode, but it puts Karen in a little bit of a different light for me because I do think it's a moment of jealousy. I think she knows that if Jim sees this flyer, then he's going to go. Or maybe if the circumstances were a little bit different, if maybe if Pam hadn't just started seeing Roy again, then Jim would definitely go. But it's like Karen doesn't even want to consider the possibility of Jim going to support his friend. And it makes me, it makes me angry. Like I said, I'm trying not to hold it against her because I mostly do like Karen and this didn't make the final cut of the episode. So you could almost say it's not technically canon. It didn't actually happen. 
but there has to be trust. And that bothers me that she didn't trust Jim for a split second. Yeah, you've voiced my my feelings exactly on that. Um, and I struggle as well with, is it canon if it's a deleted scene? Can I, does it count? Did she actually? But I, I feel like it's in the character at that point. And uh, if they included it on the DVD, then I think it's fair game. Yeah. And it's a little petty. It's a lot uh, petty. Yeah, a lot petty. And it almost makes me wonder if she did go back and take it down because Jim didn't show up. But I think that you could equally attribute that to Jim's just kind of miffed at Pam right now because of her getting back with Roy. Um, Yeah, that was my thought. So either way, like I said, it does put Karen in a little bit of a different light for me. Um, But whatever, what can you do? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, only other deleted scenes I had to do were uh, with Michael in the lecture hall he tries to get everyone to stand on their desks like robin williams and the students in dead poet society but they're those little flimsy flip-up desks that go over the uh like auditorium seats and so it doesn't work nobody could stand on those and we find out that the reason he goes with stuff like candy bars and stickers and lemonade stands is because he thinks of them like kids and (laughs) There's more offensive stuff in there, too. And in fact, he, he tells one student that the, the question he asked made him sound gay. And then he mistakenly also says that there's more than 40 billion people in the world, which is uh, quite a big overestimation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there, there's just a little bit more of that lecture hall material. And you could see Michael in full form. As I mentioned earlier, there was a commentary for this episode. Big thing for me on the commentary was that Joss Whedon directed, which is really cool. I was a big Buffy fan, but that Joss was a little bit miffed that he was (laughs) doing the episode with the CGI bat. So the bat, at least when it's flying around in the office, um, was CGI. It was not a real bat. And this is the first time that the office has used any special effects, really. Um, Definitely any CGI. And Joss was like, I just kind of left that world. Do I really need to do this again? You're going to put me on this episode. Um, But it wasn't, you know, Buffy monsters. This was a little bit more realistic. So I think it turned out all right. Right. Um, They revealed that they almost named Andy Bernard after Brent Forrester, the writer of this episode. Uh, The students that they used in the lecture hall were actual students and extras who brought in their own laptops as instructed. And part of that speech, at least, maybe even the whole lecture scene, was written by Jennifer Solota, who's another one of the the frequent writers on the show. Which I did want to say, we have been mispronouncing her name. We finally heard them say it in the commentary. We say Solota, but it's everyone in the commentary said Solota. Oh, did they? Oh, see, I, I missed that. <laughs> yeah, I've been calling her Solota, so we'll try to correct ourselves. Yeah, for sure. And then I think the last one for me was they talk about the Golden Girls formula, which um, takes place in a lot of the older sitcoms where you'll have comedy, comedy, comedy. And then at the end, they'll have what they call a heart scene. You'll see this a lot in, I think a full house is the first one I think of, um, where there's a dad and a daughter and they're sitting on her bed and the dad is telling her to be herself. (laughs) There's a touching moment towards the end of the episode and they kind of jokingly kind of honestly, called the um, Pam 
the Pam Michael scene, the heart scene, because it was a a sweet, um, meaningful moment towards the end of the episode. So it's kind of the the formula for a lot of sitcoms back in the day. They also had a couple of uh, smaller reveals that just are worth mentioning. Jenna Fisher apparently listens to or listened to a CD of music that she thought Pam would listen to on her way to work to get into character. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, part of the reason they put Ryan in the annex at the end of this episode was so that BJ Novak uh, didn't have to be in the background of so many shots in the office uh, because he is one of the frequent writers. So that allowed him to be in the writer's room more often during production. And then lastly, Mindy Kaling improvised that last scene in the annex with Ryan when he was bringing his stuff back there. Uh, the, the whole, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, uh, I won't, I won't, I won't, all of that was improvised and it was uh, just a sort of spur of the moment scene. It looks like you have a discussion topic for this episode. Chad, what do you have? I do. Um, how about, tell us about a time when you felt down, but someone lifted your spirits. Um, the only thing that really comes to mind, man, it looks like our discussion topics are like somber today. That's cool. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of, I was, I must've been in middle school because who isn't a horribly awkward mess in middle school? I remember I was in the car with my mom and I was just, dis- not disappointed, but I was just in a weird place with myself and like I thought I was just so weird and my mom instead of saying you're not weird Katie because everyone's a little bit weird she knew I loved Friends the TV show and said okay but isn't everyone a little bit weird and doesn't everyone just love Phoebe (laughs) (laughs) and um if you're a, a Friends fan you'll know that that's a pretty high compliment um she's totally a weird person but she's pretty great too. So that was the perfect uh, analogy my mom could have used and kind of changed my whole um, worldview about just being unique and being your own person. What about you? Um, The one that came to my mind was when I was in high school, my senior year, actually, um, it was state marching band competition, which was every other year in the fall. And the previous two times the high school had gone, so the year before I started high school and then my second year of high school, both times the band had won first place in the state marching contest. And so I was like, this was my senior year. I was horn section leader. I was band president. And so I almost felt like a sense of responsibility, like we have to continue this. And we came in third, which is still really great in retrospect. But at the moment, it was just like, oh, man, it could have been three in a row but it wasn't. But what I remember was when we were getting on or getting off the buses after the fact, um, our band director, who is the reason why I went into music for my career in the first place, he was shaking hands or hugging every single person who came off the bus and saying, I'm proud of you. And every single time, whether even though he was saying it for everybody or to everybody, it felt like it was meant just for you. And he was genuinely proud of us. And I think that it's similar to the situation that uh, Michael and Pam go through in this episode, where sometimes you just need somebody to say that they're proud of you. Uh, And it it meant a lot in the moment. And I still obviously think back on it sometimes. So there's that. Those teachers are always the best. The ones that 
talk to you individually, you know, and mm-hmm. they, they teach so many kids, but when, when they talk to you and make a connection with each student is just really, really special. So to any teachers out there, well done. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like that is the end of our 24th episode of An American Workplace. You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash workplacepod or at workplacepod on Twitter. Please remember, if you would like to rate or review, subscribe, you can do so on iTunes. And you can email feedback and ideas to workplacepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash kd.white. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins and my other podcast, Cinescope, where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. You can find that where podcasts can be found and at thecinescopepodcast.com. Show notes and all contact information can be found at our website, workplacepodcast.com. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 24 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 25 for our discussion on the next two episodes of season three, Cocktails and The Negotiation. Bye! And could instead be in the writer's room because he is one of the shows. Oh, hold on. Sorry, my cat just jumped onto the desk and knocked things over. (laughs) Cat, get down from there.